Hello, I'm Trent Brown, and you're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. Today, we're speaking with Paranjoy Guha Thakurta. Paranjoy is a man of many talents a writer, speaker, television anchor, interviewer, teacher, documentary filmmaker, and as of April 2016, he's been working as the editor of Economic and Political Weekly, a publication which has just celebrated its 50th anniversary, and which I must say is an absolute staple for anyone doing research on contemporary India. Broadly speaking, Paranjoy's work focuses on media and the political economy of natural resources in India. And at present, he's got a special focus on corruption and the nexus between business and politics, issues which we're going to be talking about in some detail today. So, Paranjoy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Trent, for having me on this program. So, for many years now, you've focused on crony capitalism and the business politics nexus in India. Before we go into the details on that, could you explain what exactly you mean by crony capitalism and how it operates in India today? India's first prime minister, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, from the late 40s and the early 50s, wanted India to have a mixed economy. It wanted India to assimilate the best of capitalism and socialism. Nearly 70 years down the line, many of us believe, in a sense, we took the worst of both worlds. We took the worst of capitalism, we took the worst of socialism. We had a license control Raj instead of free enterprise capitalism. What socialist countries were able to do for their respective populations in terms of healthcare and education, we were unable to do that. So the mixed up economy was not a mixed economy. And instead of capitalism, what we've seen, especially after the 90s, is cronyism, where you don't really have free enterprise, nor do you have competition, you have the government acting in a manner that benefits a privileged few, often at the expense of the large majority. Mm. So you kind of combine that nepotism of socialism with the self-interestedness of capitalism. You know, in an ideal world, uh, India should have got the best of both worlds. And I do believe future generations will learn to Assimilate, assimilate and adopt some of the best practices from across the globe. But so far, we've taken some of the worst practices. We, we've not really put in place regulatory systems which ensured, uh, which ensure that capitalism or capitalists or big business is accountable for their actions. In the name of socialism, we've seen planned economies and, and authoritarian regimes. Uh, India's tried it all and we seem to not have taken the best of all these worlds. We seem to have taken some of the worst practices. So I, I think in the future, the young, the new generation, the coming generations of Indians will learn and, and take uh, and, and assimilate and adopt some of the best practices from across the world. So would you say that this form of crony capitalism is unique to India or is it more of a global phenomenon? It's certainly not unique to India. You see it in different parts of the world. You see it in developing countries. You've also seen it in so-called advanced uh, industrial societies. You've heard about the robber barons of, of the United States of America who built the railroads and, and uh, ran the mines. I mean, we're talking about the time between the two world wars. You've heard about the oligarchs uh, after the Soviet Union broke up in, in Russia you had. So you also have instances across the world in, in China where you have 
uh, relatives and associates of leaders of the Chinese Communist Party who become very, very rich. So uh, crony capitalism is not unique to India. Mm. But would you say it takes some unique forms in the Indian setting? In certain respects, yes, because India is unique, because India as a country, as a nation state is unique in terms of its diversity, in terms of its heterogeneity, in terms of its plurality. So uh, in a sense, you find uh, everything there. You find the best and the worst, as the old saying goes. The only thing that you can generalize about India is that you cannot generalize about India. <laughs> this is a country which has produced one out of three persons on the planet who's a computer software engineer. But one out of three persons on the planet who's poor, who's hungry, who's illiterate, she is also an Indian. So if we turn now to the focus of your talk at the Australia India Institute... How is this business politics nexus implicated in the corrupt allocation and distribution of natural resources in India today? Uh, my presentation at the Australia India Institute focused on five instances of how the government has failed to act as a genuine representative of the people. It's failed to be a true custodian or a trustee of natural resources which belong to the people of the country. Mm. And it's not just present generations, but future generations as well. When those who claim to represent the country or the people of this country fail to act in the best interests of the majority, when they act in a partisan manner, when they act in an opaque, non-transparent manner, when natural resources, whether these be telecommunication spectrum, whether it be coal, iron ore, natural gas or land is allocated and priced in a manner that benefits a few mm -hmm. at the expense of the majority. Mm -hmm. That is what is wrong because private capitalists uh, or private capital and industrialists would like to maximize their profits. But it's up to the government, it's up to the state to ensure that regulatory mechanisms are put in place. Mm -hmm. Democracies across the world are never effective unless they have systems of checks and balances. In India, we have such bodies, and it is because of such bodies, and these include the judiciary, the Supreme Court of India. It also includes bodies like the Controller and Auditor General of India and sections of the media, that these instances of how natural resources have been misappropriated, mispriced, and misallocated have come to public notice. Mm. So perhaps if we could take an example to illustrate this, could we look at coal for how these sort of dynamics have uh, played out in that domain? In the early 70s, coal mining was nationalized by the government. Even today, 80% of the coal that's produced in India is by a public sector company called Coal India Limited. However, the government has allowed private industries to mine coal, provided it is used captively for making steel or cement and so on and so forth. What has happened in the recent past, and this has been adversely commented about by the Control and Auditor General of India, these coal acreages, these coal blocks were allotted in an arbitrary manner, you know, by small groups of people, small committees of people. They were not publicly auctioned, as a result of which 
after a very, very damning report came out by the Controller and Auditor General of India, the Supreme Court had to intervene, had to intervene in an investigation and even had to haul up India's premier police investigation agency, the Central Bureau of Investigation, for not doing its job properly. And at one stage, it was even derogatorily remarked by a bench of the Supreme Court that the Central Bureau of Investigation, the CBI, was behaving as if it was a caged parrot hmm. because it had shown the, the, the reports that uh, the, its investigation reports to the very same people they were investigating. So, in a sense, the investigation itself had been compromised. Absolutely correct. And if it hadn't been for the hue and cry that was raised, things might have been much worse. To take up another issue which a lot of people would uh, you know, find quite alarming, the politics of land and, and how land allocations have been you know, caught up in this crony capitalism. Land is scarce in India. To give you uh, just a set of statistics, India with 1.3 billion people accounts for roughly 17% of the population of the planet. But India's land area is barely 2.5% of the total land area of planet Earth. So land is a scarce commodity. We had a law that was enacted by the British, the colonial rulers of India, over a century ago, which was called the Land Acquisition Act, which actually gave those in positions of power and authority arbitrary powers to appropriate land, ostensibly for public purposes, whether it be building roads or railways or bridges. In 2013, the political class of India came together to amend that law. However, the present government sought to amend that law further in 2014 December by issuing ordinances. However, despite a number of attempts, the government had to backtrack because it is a highly emotive issue if agricultural land, especially if it's fertile, multi-cropped agricultural land, is to be used for non-agricultural purposes, then not only those who own that land, but those whose livelihoods depend on that land should be adequately compensated. For that, you must have transparent means of assessing costs and benefits. And going beyond compensation, there must be transparent methods of ascertaining whether that land is going to be used for public purposes. So on this issue, there was a huge controversy. Uh, the Narendra Modi government sought to amend that law ostensibly to make business people happy, to improve the ease of doing business in India. But he ran into a wall of opposition and he's finally decided, the prime minister has said, that he's not going to make an attempt to amend that law. I understand that a lot of this comes down to how you define the public interest. Am I right? There's... Absolutely correct. You know, Trent, this is very, very contentious. If, say, a private company is setting up a hospital, can it be said to be in the public interest if he doesn't provide, say, free facilities or highly subsidized facilities to the poor? So if that hospital becomes a purely profit-making enterprise, then does it truly serve the public interest? You can give a similar example of a, a school or an educational institution. Now, you can get land to build a school, but if the private owners of that school do not provide certain facilities to the underprivileged, you could argue that such a, a, an educational institution is not acting in 
the public interest. Mm. And sort of responding to those issues, we've seen a lot of resistance to uh, this kind of uh, business politics nexus in India. Uh, we see these anti-corruption movements. We see the rise of the Aam Aadmi Party. We also see the Supreme Court making a lot of interventions uh, into this uh, terrain. Uh, do you believe that progress is being made to rein in the excesses of crony capitalism? I do believe that is happening. It's happening somewhat in a halting manner. Maybe it's not happening as quickly as many of us would have liked. But to say that there's been no progress would be wrong. I think it's not only a more alert and a more conscious citizenry, but different organs of the state, including the judiciary, including the body of auditors, including the Election Commission of India, are all coming together at different points of time to hold accountable those who are in positions of power and authority to ensure that there's greater transparency in public life. These processes are taking place and, and there's also pressure from below ordinary people who are disgusted with the manner in which a few people manage to manipulate that system for their gains. Yeah, we also see uh, a lot more ministers and uh, other politicians going to jail as a result of their involvement in corrupt allocation of natural resources. Is this a new development? It's relatively new that more and more members of parliament, members of legislative assemblies, chief ministers, union ministers, as well as uh, important industrialists and business persons and, and top uh, bureaucrats have at different points of time found themselves behind bars. It merely indicates that uh, despite all that is wrong with Indian society, you still have respect for the rule of law and, and you still have occasions that some of these individuals do find themselves incarcerated and behind bars. But I may, I should add that perhaps more of them should go behind bars and there are many more who manage to get away than those who are caught and put behind bars. I mean, in some ways you've described this sort of depressing picture of a, a system that's been compromised at multiple points. And then you talk about the uh, judiciary and uh, different branches of the public services somehow being immune to that. Why is that? Why is it that some branches of government seem to get out of the uh, orbit of corruption in this way? The glass can be half empty or half full, Trent, you know. It's how you want to look at it. Truth is relative. You blindfold a person. This is a very famous analogy that Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi used. You are boiling water in one bowl and ice cold water in another and lukewarm water in the middle. If you first put your hand in the boiling hot water, then that lukewarm water appears cold. But if you first put your hand in that cold water, then that lukewarm water appears hot. The truth is, it is lukewarm. Therefore, you know, if you, when you look at corruption in India, there are reasons to be despondent, but there are equally important reasons to be optimistic. You know, sometimes some of us do believe that, you know, things can't get worse. But then the darkest hour is just before the dawn. And as you've rightly pointed out, there are movements of ordinary people and sections of the media, the judiciary, other organs of the state, that are protesting, that are rebelling and trying to improve the system to make sure there are 
checks and balances, more robust regulatory mechanisms, better accountability systems, greater transparency in public life. So it's a bit of both. And I, for one, am an optimist. So we do have room for hope. Would you say that there's some space that you think we should really be watching where we might see a change in this, in this arena? You're already seeing that change and you keep seeing the change. Uh, Look at our election system. In the Election Commission of India, we have one of the finest bodies of its kind anywhere in the world. India has had 16 general elections and on eight occasions, the government has changed. In 2014, in the 16th general election, more than two-thirds of those eligible to vote actually voted. So yes, indeed, We are certainly the world's largest democracy. We hope in the coming years, future generations of Indians can say we're also one of the best, if not the best democracy in the world. Something to look forward to. So as of uh, 2016, you've been working as editor of Economic and Political Weekly. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners would be familiar with EPW, but for those who might not be, could you give us a bit of a background on what EPW is and the role that it plays in the public sphere? The Economic and Political Weekly turned 50 just a few days ago as we speak. In its earlier avatar, as the Economic Weekly, it was been, it's been publishing, it's, uh, it's a weekly that's been published out of Mumbai uh, from 1949. So the publication and its website is almost as old as the country itself. What makes the Economic and Political Weekly unique is that it combines academic scholarly research with commentaries and analyses and reportage on current affairs. So... At one level, a part of the EPW is like a refereed scholarly journal and one part of it is like a newspaper or a news weekly, its op-ed pages and its things. So this combination, and it's it's a tough and a tricky balancing act to follow, but uh, this is what makes the Economic and Political Weekly uh, a, a unique institution, not only in India or South Asia, but the world. Mm. And and as you've said, EPW has just finished celebrating its 50th birthday. How is it that this low-budget, very sort of no-frills publication has managed to survive for so long? The quality of its writing. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. Um, many people argue that uh, people have low attention spans, fewer and fewer people are reading. Even if this be true, at the end of the day, Man doesn't live by bread alone. He needs food for thought. She needs food for thought. And if what you read analyzes and explains and gives you certain perspectives of this very, very complex world that we live in, then I think that's one of the reasons why a publication like the EPW has been able to survive. And hopefully it'll not just survive, but continue to do all the work that it's been doing over the last 50 years and longer for the next 50 years, long after people like me are dead and gone. (laughs) Well, EPW is known for publishing independent and often quite critical pieces, but very incisive pieces. Uh, Would you say that this kind of independent writing is under threat in contemporary India? It's under threat across the world. Why only in India? True. Whoever's in power anywhere in the world, they don't like criticism. Uh, There's a lot of intolerance across the world and also in India. Even those who swear by 
democracy, those who swear by freedom of expression, believe it's a fundamental right as, 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 as fundamental a right as a right to live. Even such people, despite what they may publicly proclaim, don't want criticism. How many of us like to be criticized? How many of us uh, like it when our parents say things about us? You know, but there is criticism and there is criticism. But I do believe that publications like the EPW, independent publications, have to hold truth to power. I think it's important that the media brings about greater transparency in society, that the media tries to hold accountable those who are in positions of power. It is very important for the media to critique and analyze government decisions, government policies, and and, and take a, a critical look at the work and, and the actions and, and the manner in which elites function. In Padanjoy, I really wish we had time to discuss things further, but we're going to have to wrap things up. Uh, it's been a really eye-opening and fascinating conversation. Uh, for those of our listeners who are interested in learning more, how can they follow your work? My work and the work of the EPW is very easy. EPW.in. We have a website. We put in a lot of material uh, virtually every day. And uh, certainly, I mean, uh, we, we put out about somewhere in the region of seventy to 80,000 words, 70,000 words to 80,000 words every week. That, that's like a thick book, okay? That's the content that's put out every week on our website. So please feel free to do that. If you want to follow me, no, <laughs> Paranjoy at epw.in. Paranjoy, thank you so much for joining us on the afternoon, Adda. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, that's all from us today. Bye for now.